Hey, if you got your Bibles on you this morning, would you turn to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. And we're jumping into a new series in the book of Ephesians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus. And, and, and here's the thing, as you, as you get to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to get a foundation for your life, like a good handle on, on what God says about who he is, what God says about who you are, how to do life as a Christ follower. I mean, this is the book, Ephesians. In fact, I, I would encourage you to, to add, for the, for the weeks we're gonna be in it in the sermon series, that, that you would even take the book of Ephesians and say, I'm gonna add this to my Bible reading during these few weeks. Right? The, the plan that I've set out, it's only like the second week in January, so you're still crushing your Bible reading plan, right? right? It's not till February, March, we start to, okay, so, so you're still, right, you got that, just, just take Ephesians and while you're still crushing New Year's resolutions, take the book of Ephesians and, and add that in. I, there's six chapters, it's not very long, that I'd say, even, even this, maybe before you go to bed at night, you just grab it and you read a chapter. Six chapters in a week, you're done Ephesians. You do it over and over again. I'll tell you what it'll do. It will, it will take what we do here on a Sunday morning and make it that much better. If men in this room who have families, I mean, as you lead your family, like, like you've been called to lead your family, you, you, you can always answer just, just about any gospel question that comes your way if, if you know the book of Ephesians. In fact, when you, you look at the whole book, chapters four, five, and six are, are just the most, most jam-packed, full, detailed, specific instructions on how to live. Chapters four, five, and six, it talks about how, how, do, how do you communicate? How, how do I reconcile differences between people? How, how do I change habits that are hard to change? How, how, do, I, how do I do community? What, what about church? What, what about my conscience? What about my marriage? What about my family? What about my work? It, it covers all of those things. So practical for what does it look like to live your life in Christ? But chapter four begins, you can see it there if you got on your, on your Bible open and look at chapter four, it starts with I, therefore. Therefore, it says. So, so four, five, and six, just super practical on how to live your life, but it begins with chapters one to three. Before you get to the therefore, here's how you live this stuff out. You've got to get the gospel foundation, chapters one and three, the, this foundation that, that would, no matter what storm comes into your life, it's going to be a solid enough foundation for you to live out chapters four, five, and six. Chapter one gives us this cosmic view of the gospel. Chapter two begins to give us this, this individual view of the gospel for us. Chapter three gives a, a community view of the gospel. And so we're gonna dig together for a number of weeks in these first few chapters and then jump into the last half of the book and talk about the implications that if you get the gospel, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, if you're in Christ, then, then this is how you live. Before we jump into the text, let me give you a quick intro, a bit of a background to the, the letter to the Ephesians and what, what's going on here. We first hear about Ephesus and Paul in Acts chapter 19. Paul goes into Ephesus and, and I mean, the power of the Holy Spirit in Paul, working through Paul was, was so much that crowds are coming to hear him preach. So full of the Holy Spirit that it says this, it says that, that Paul's handkerchiefs would be laid on sick people and they would be healed. All right, they're, they're taking Paul's Kleenex, all right? And people are healed from it, okay? That, that, that's what's going on. That, that's a kind of power happening. And, and so in Acts 19, we also read about these guys. We've talked about them before, the, the seven sons of Sceva. 
And these guys see Paul doing all this miraculous work and they're like, we want in on that, right? So they kind of start this, this um, exorcism business, right? Acts 19, they're trying to cast out demons. They go to this guy to cast a demon out of him and, and they say this, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches, get out of this guy. And the demons are like, yeah, we know who Jesus is. And we've heard of Paul. How cool is that, right? If demons hear about you, you're doing some pretty sweet work. We've heard of Paul, but, but who are you guys? And this demon-possessed man jumps these seven guys. And, and Acts 19 says they're they beaten so bad, it says they leave naked and wounded. But think about that. You, you start the fight with pants on, right? And you end the fights and you don't have pants anymore. You're going to need some good biblical counseling after that experience, Right? So Paul plants a church there, and this church explodes. Thousands of people get saved. In fact, in fact, it says that every person in Ephesus heard the gospel. So much so that the gospel permeated that city so much that it changed even the socioeconomic structure of the city. There, there were these silversmiths who were making these idols these, this, so that people could worship pagan gods. The gospel changes the place so much. These guys go out of business. Imagine that now. Now, here's my, my thought. I think about the church in Ephesus, and I go, what about our church? Like, imagine that happening here. Don't, don't grab my Kleenex. That's probably not happening, all right? But, but imagine the gospel going out through Huntsville in that way. I mean, why not? Why not? Why, why, I mean, imagine so much that, that we're living out the gospel in a way that the Spirit of God has filled us and using us in a way in our town in such a way. Like, like imagine the mayor calls our church and says, hey, like we're planning a huge event, but, but we don't want it to, to be on the same day that you guys are doing your Easter services because we know everybody will be at your church, right? Like, like imagine that kind of, of a thing happening here. That's the kind of power happening in this church in Ephesus. Church planted by Paul. It was pastored by Timothy, all right? That's First and Second Timothy. Those are the letters Paul writes to that pastor. That's, that's who's pastoring this church, okay? Jesus' disciple John, John was an elder at this church. And this is a pretty amazing church. Planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy. John is one of the elders. And, and we're gonna study this letter that Paul writes to the church. And he, he, with all this good stuff going on, Paul writes a letter saying, hey, I wanna make sure you're grounded in the gospel. Let's dig in then. So look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, if you're writing a letter back in the first century, we write letters, we end off with sincerely or with love, and we end with our name. As they're writing letters, they start with who's writing the letter. So this is Paul writing to this church in Ephesus. And right off the bat, just in that first statement there, there's so much hope. There's so much hope in this letter. Hope in this, that Paul's writing the letter. Now, why would there be hope in that? Because, listen, Paul started his life as this religious terrorist. So on the, on the one hand, he was super religious. He, he was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. That, that means if, if you think you're doing good in this whole church thing, Paul was better, better, better than any of us on the list of do's and don'ts. But if you roll in here this morning and think, yeah, but you don't know how bad I am, yeah, Paul was worse a religious terrorist. I mean, I don't know what you did on your New Year's Eve party, but I doubt it comes close. If you think, yeah, but the stuff, I, yeah, it does not come close to what Paul was wrapped up in. He terrorized, he persecuted Christians. Christians being beaten, thrown in prison, killed, all while Paul is leading the charge against them and God saves Paul. Jesus changes his life. Listen, if, if 
God can change and use Paul. Do you know what that means? It means there's hope for every single person in this room. It means as you go out of here with the gospel, there's, there's hope for our community. It, it shows here, Paul being saved, it shows on one hand, all right, that, that you can't be good enough to earn your salvation. You're not going to surpass Paul's goodness and his religion. But on the other hand, you can't be so bad that you're so far from God's reach. I mean, that's, that's how hopeful, that's how big the grace of God is. Ephesians 1 goes on, look at verse 1, it says, to the saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. I love that, to the, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, 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 before it gets there, it says, to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. I want you to see that little phrase, in Christ Jesus. When you're reading through scripture on your own, you're studying it, when you see a phrase that's repeated a lot, that's one you underline, that's one you circle, that's one you pay attention to, because there's something going on here. There's, there's something being, being, the Spirit wants us to see here. This idea of in Christ, or in Him, in the 14 verses we're unpacking this morning, over 10 times you see those phrases being used. The whole main theme of this book of Ephesians, I would say, is this, that your identity is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ by the will of the Father for his glory. Let me say that again. Your identity, who you are, who you are is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ by the will of the Father for his glory. It's not about what you do that makes you a Christian. That's not the gospel. In fact, it's the opposite of the gospel. In the gospel, your identity comes before your activity. It starts with knowing who you are in Christ before you act like Christ. Chapters 4 to 6 come after chapters 1 to 3. It's, it's gospel before activity. So, so if you grew up in a church where it was all about this list that we keep of here's our do's and here's our don'ts, here's the things we do, here's the things we don't do, the Bible actually turns that upside down. If, if that's the way you think you get into relationship with Christ, the Bible doesn't say, hey, if you do right, you can be in his family. It says if I'm in Christ. It's being in Christ that changes everything. It's being in Christ that changes who you are. So it's not, hey, get all your stuff figured out. Get that all worked out. Make sure you're doing these things. And then maybe, then maybe, maybe Jesus will take a look at you. It's the, that's not the gospel at all. Being in Christ changes everything. It changes who you are. It changes your activity. Because in, in God's economy, there's, there's, you're in one of two places. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. Adam and Eve, the first to sin, and so, so, so that sin gets passed down to all of us. So, so you start off, all of us start off born into sin. All of us start life in Adam. And you can stay in Adam. You stay in Adam, which, which really means you say, I'm the boss of me. And you remain in Adam. Or you can be in Christ, which means you say, I lay down the lordship of my life. I'm not the boss of me anymore. Jesus, I want you to be Lord. That's being in Christ. And if you're in Christ, I love this, it's, it says here, if you're in Christ, the Bible calls you a saint. I mean, can you believe that? So, so yeah, Wu is right. Instead of, your, your, instead of your identity being, I'm a wretched sinner, like honestly, worse than you would ever admit, right, when you, you understand your own sin, the, the Bible says that you weren't just a, a sinner, you're dead in sin, all right? Rotting, stinking, hopeless, helpless, but in Christ, you're now a saint. 
I mean, it kind of blows up this idea that, oh, no, no, only like real special, really good people, they get to be called saints. Forget that. The Bible says anyone in Christ is a saint. If you're in Christ, when, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your past sin. He doesn't see the stuff you're wrestling with right now. He doesn't base who you are on that. He sees what Christ has done for you, and that makes you a saint. And some of you are like, yeah, I don't really feel like a saint. Yeah, your feelings don't get to determine who you are. You're not your feelings. You're not your temptations. You're not your past. You're not your addictions. You're not your orientation. You're not your marital status. You're not the things that you used to do. You're not the things that you're struggling with even this morning. You're not your performance. You're not your church attendance or your tithing record. You're not the person who sings with arms up or arms down. None of those things. It's not who you are. If you're in Christ, your identity is in him. You've died to yourself and now now he lives in you and that makes you a saint. I mean, that that should cause us to just relax a little bit, shouldn't it? I mean, look at verse two. Verse two says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is pouring out grace on you and peace on you. And verses 3 to 14 show us how God does that. I want, us, I want us to see this this morning before we, before we move on in the book of Ephesians, how important that our identity in Christ is. It's the foundation. Because when you know whose you are, it's going to inform you of who you are. That you've been bought, you've been purchased by God, you've been claimed by God. That All the activity of your life now flows out of that truth of whose you are which informs who you are. In fact, as Paul writes this out, verses 13, 3 to 14, in the original Greek, it's just this one big run-on sentence. Like, he would have failed English class if he handed this in as his essay assignment, right? This huge run-on sentence. And, and here's what I think it is. It's like Paul gets started on this grace, the blessing of what it is to be in Christ, and he can't stop. He's, he's so blown away by grace. This letter's written 25 years after Paul met Jesus and he still can't stop singing Amazing Grace. And Paul says to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, he says, I'm I'm the chief of sinners. Like Paul knew his heart better than anyone. And he sees his sin, and he sees God's grace, and these verses are his response to that. These verses are Paul in this this fired up, I cannot believe this is true. Like you got to hear this. this. This joyful expression of worship comes out of Paul. I mean, he starts with verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he ends in chapter 14 with to the praise of his glory. This is not a bunch of theological information, although there are some deep theological truths in this. It's not just information. This is worship. This is worship overflowing joy coming out in worship from Paul. These verses, it's this Holy Spirit-inspired, infallible, inerrant, poorly punctuated for sure, right? This long run-on sentence that describes who God is as a heavenly father who wants to give you every spiritual blessing in Christ. Describes how the gospel changes you. And these verses are meant to draw us to this amazing grace. Listen, if if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus this morning, these verses are meant to, to draw you, to call you to this new life that could be yours. 
If, if you're in Christ, these verses are meant to, to draw you, to, to call you, to join in Paul in worship as you reflect on God's grace. That's what Paul's unpacking here. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I am blessed. I am blessed. You're like, Kai, that's the first point. How many points are there? You just got to the first point. Tons. We're going to keep going. <laughs> all right, there you go. Thank you. One person's good with it, so we're moving on. All right. <laughs> I am blessed, it says. If you've gone from death to life, if, if you're in Christ, you're blessed. And I love it. God's not stingy with his blessing. What's he say? Every spiritual blessing. You don't need to go looking for your joy somewhere else. You don't need to go looking for love somewhere else. You don't need to go looking for peace somewhere else because we've been blessed by God. That word blessing, it just means benefit. Every spiritual benefit that you could possibly have is yours in Christ. Here's the blessing described. Look at verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him, there's in him again, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's our second point. Who are you? You can say, I am chosen. I am blessed. I am chosen, it says. If you're in Christ, then here's good news for you. God chose you. You didn't choose God. God chose you. And he chose you, it says, before the foundation of time. That's amazing, not, not just before you were born, before the world was created. It's such good news. He chose you. If you're in Christ, he chose you before you ever attended church. He chose you before you ever prayed a prayer, before you ever gave, before you ever signed up to go on a missions trip somewhere. He chose you. I mean, this changes everything. Now, I know we can get into a, a ton of theological discussions and arguments about what, the, what does it mean? God chose me or I chose him. But listen, let's, let's just rest in the comfort of knowing what Scripture says right here. He chose you. Now, I think about back in grade school days, right? I love street hockey because in street hockey, we did the thing where you, everyone throws their stick in the middle, remember that? And then one guy comes, he just does a... Right, and you divide teams that way. That's the best way. I, I hate dodgeball where, hey, let's pick the two coolest kids and they'll go down through the line choosing people, right? I know when you see me now as this athletic-looking hunk of a man, I was not always that way. And, and I'm, I'm, right? And they're going, I'll choose you, I'll choose you. And I'm like, really? Getting down the, and I'm like the only one left and they're, they're still pausing. Like, it's just me. Uh, can we take Ricky's three-legged dog? Like, how do we, right? I mean, I've got good news. Listen, dodgeball, dodgeball mattered very little. What matters for eternity is this. God chose you. And I picture God in that same way. It says in 1 Peter that the angels look in on the gospel. They're leaning in going, we want to see how this gospel plays out. So I picture God in heaven and, and the angels watching as God's choosing. God says, I, I choose that guy for my team. And Gabriel's like, really? That guy's pretty messed up. He's a liar. He's so selfish. He's, he's not going to be an all-star at church. I mean, he's so insecure. He's got so much. And God says, I know all of that. I know all of that. I choose him for my team. But do you ever wonder, do you ever struggle with, man, has God disappointed in me? 
like maybe, maybe God will love me more. Some, some future version of me, that's, that's when God's really gonna be okay with me. Once, once I get my act together, listen, the truth is this. The cross already outs us all as it not being about us. God doesn't choose us because we've done something so awesome. Because if, if we were so great, why would Christ have to die? I mean, the cross shows us so clearly. We don't earn our way to this. This whole idea of this doctrine of election that God chose you is part of what makes Christianity so unique. Every other religion makes it about you. You need to work hard to make yourself a fill in the blank of what, what, what religion you want to follow. I work hard to become this. And Christianity says, no, no, no. God does all the work. It's all grace. It's all grace. He opens your eyes to the beauty of the gospel, something you would not have naturally chosen. God opens your eyes to it and you say, I want that. There's nothing more humbling and I think nothing more wonderful than that kind of love. That's the kind of love that you want, not a love that's dependent on what you do because you can lose that kind of love. But there's this love here being described here in Ephesians that's a love that started before there were even stars in the sky, before the foundation of the world. So, so everything else in the universe can collapse and God's love for you still goes on. I mean, talk about a love that overcomes any issue we may have with self-esteem. God chose you. Now look what it says. What did he chose, choose you for? God chose you to be holy and blameless. I kind of like that. I think I might start using that a little bit when people say, hey, how are you? Holy and blameless. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you don't look holy and blameless. I know! I don't even feel holy and blameless. But guess what? Feelings don't get to determine who I am. God says in his word that I'm holy and blameless. Holy, that you've been set apart for a purpose. Blameless. The, the theological word for this is justified. Justification. That, that when, when God sees you because of the cross and what Christ has done for you, he sees Christ's finished work. That you wear his cloaks of righteousness. That's how he sees you. And he's at work in you right now, making that a reality in what's called sanctification. But you're holy and blameless, justified before God. Look at verse 5, it goes on. It says, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He's blessed us in the beloved. Now, don't get freaked out by that predestination word there. All right, there's, there's a lot of theological discussions and debates we could have about that. I, I don't think this passage was written to cause division. It's written to encourage us that before the foundation of the world, God's destined us, planned out for us, has a destination for you. That the Bible teaches that, that, that you are fearfully and wonderfully knit together in your mother's womb, that, that God knew all the days he'd formed for you, written in his book of life. That if you're in Christ, he has a destination for you, that, that you would be the light of the world. If you're in Christ, that he's placed you in Muskoka with a purpose for such a time as this, a purpose and a plan for you. And I gotta think that the creator of the universe isn't just making this up as he goes along that he's got a plan in place. I don't think God wakes up in the morning and is like, oh no. Like, what are we gonna do? She, she chose to go to that college. I was hoping she went to this one. <gasps> I don't think God's ever been surprised. 
You're predestined. He's, he's got a plan for your life. And look what it says he's actually predestined you for, specifically, for what? For adoption. If you're taking notes, that's the next. I, I'm adopted. I've been adopted. I love that. It means this. God didn't just pay for your sins and they say, okay, see how you do life. Go ahead. No, he brought you into his family. I kind of picture it this way. It's, it's like you're going into the courtroom and, and the judge declares you innocent, not guilty. And he goes, and, and I want you to move into my house. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to pay for college for you. I'm going to, everything's you. My inheritance is yours. I mean, that's what God does for you in Christ. This idea of God adopting us, it's, it's why I love the parents in our congregation who have, who have adopted kids. Because it's, it's this amazing picture of what's happened for each of us with God. Parents choosing kids. My, my sister was adopted, and my parents used to always say this to her when she kind of got this weird, oh man, I'm adopted. Well, oh, I'm not the same as my brothers are. And my parents were like, no, we had to keep them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we chose you. <laughs> Listen, in adoption, Kids don't pick the parents, right? It's, it's not like the, in an orphanage, the kid has a lineup of parents, right? Okay, uh, number four, you turn around for me. Okay, let me see. Number five, Xbox or PlayStation. Okay, you're out, right? Like, that's not how it happens, right? Parents pick the kids. God chose you for adoption. And not only that, but in adoption, parents pay the full price. Whatever that cost is, the emotional cost, the financial cost, the time cost, parents pay it. An adopted kid doesn't come home and say, okay, what do I owe you? Parents pay the full price, and the kid gets everything. Kid gets a new name, a new home, a new life. That's what happens to you in salvation. You get a new name, Christian, just means little Christ. You get a new home, a new life. I mean, how does that land on you to know that you're adopted by your heavenly father? J.I. Packer says it this way. He says, if you want to know how well somebody understands Christianity, how much do they make of being God's child? How much do they, do they make of being adopted into the family, of having God as your father? I mean, this should cause us to worship. This should, this should change how we pray. This should inform how we live our lives our whole outlook on life. Because I think too many professing Christians live like they're servants, not like they're children of God. Now God does this, why? Why does God choose? It says according to the purpose of his will. He's the one who does the choosing to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I mean, if you talk to a family that's adopted kids, and they say, man, we're so blessed that God worked out all the details for us to be able to adopt our son and daughter. But, but, but if you talk to the son or daughter, they'd say, man, I'm so blessed that God would orchestrate this adoption, that I, that I have parents that would choose me. So there's this, this, this double blessing, I think, in that verse. There's this blessing we have that, that, that God's blessed with this word blessed. When you surrender your life to, to the lordship of Christ, God is glorified. You are blessed. Let's keep going. Look at verse 7. It goes on. It says, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom 
and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here's the next thing that we are in Christ. This is who you are. I am redeemed, forgiven, and loved. I am redeemed, forgiven, and loved. It says we're, we're redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. That, that's the justification happening there, right? Redeemed by his blood. It, that's how Christ purchased you. Have you ever used a coupon before, right? You, you, you go into, you get this, this coupon. I got a free bag of chips coupon. You, you roll into Walmart. You put your chip on the conveyor belt. Bleep, it goes through. They say $249. Yeah, I don't think so. I got a coupon, right? And you get this, this free gift. They hand you a free bag of chips. It cost you nothing. All you had to do was redeem the coupon. I give you this. You give me my bag of chips. Didn't cost you anything, but guess what? It cost the chip manufacturer everything to do that, right? Right? When Christ died on the cross for your sins, by his blood, through his resurrection, he redeemed you. And so you go, God, here's my coupon for salvation. I believe in you. I put my trust in you. And you get a free gift of salvation, free for you, but it cost Christ bearing the sin of the world on the cross. And you're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. I, I, in my mind, I think of it this way. You, you, you log into your bank account and, and you're like, oh man, I've, over, I've overdrawn. I've got no money. In fact, I've, I've spent too much money. And, and, and now imagine that, that, that Christmas was really good and you've overspent by trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. Like, like you've got government kind of debt right now, right? And, and, and you're looking at this going, man, if, if I worked for the rest of my life, every hour, I could never pay this debt off. I could never earn enough to be back in the black. And then God steps into the picture and God logs onto his bank account. I like how it says that he forgives according to the riches of his grace. I like that. Like if Jeff Bezos says, I'm going to bless you, do you want him to bless you according to your need or according to his riches? I'll take your riches, Jeff Bezos, right? God steps in and he's got trillions upon trillions upon trillions of times trillions and he sees your debt and he says this, hey, I'll make a deal with you. Let's just trade I'll take all that's in your account, all that debt. I'll take all your debt. Like, okay, okay, what do I got to do? What, what do I have to do for you to take all that debt? Do you just receive it? I'm going to give you all of my account. You surrender to me. You get all of me. All that I have, and I get all of you. It's what theologians call the double imputation, that our sin is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. That, that's why when God sees you, he says you're a saint because he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees Christ in you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that, that God made him who was without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made righteous. That's redemption. That's forgiveness. And this forgiveness, this love, look at the words in the verse there. It says it's lavished on you. First John, John says this, what kind of love is this? What manner of love is this? Where does this kind of love come from what, that God lavished on us that we would be called sons and daughters of God? And we serve a God who doesn't just save you. He lavishes love on you. 
I mean, isn't that what a good parent does? If, if God is your father, don't good parents just lavish love? I remember the first time I held each of my daughters. And I, I'm like, I am not a violent guy at all. I'd rather make you laugh than fight with you, right? And yet I remember holding each of my girls and thinking, if somebody messes with this, I have four acres. I could hide the body, right? <laughs> and right, you take them home and you love them so much. And, and think about it as you're lavishing love. What does the baby do for you? Nothing. <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah. Babies are a total drain, right? They don't let you sleep. They only make a mess. They cry a lot. They're so selfish. No, no one's baby here has ever gone, hey, I'll let you finish up what you're doing first, and then I'm going to, no, they don't, right? <laughs> Never. But what do you do? You lavish love on them. Hugs and kisses and words and whatever, you just lavish love upon love. Listen, when God redeemed you, he didn't just do enough for you to be forgiven. He didn't just get you a get at a hell free card. He lavishes love on you. He overwhelms his kids with love. Look at verse 11. It says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Here's our last point as we wrap things up. My inheritance is guaranteed. Everything we've just listed, that you're blessed, you're adopted, you're chosen, you're forgiven, redeemed in love, it's guaranteed. I love that as you read through the book of Ephesians, you see in Paul's letter here, all of his letters, that Paul never gets over this, never gets over his salvation. He, he couldn't get over the fact that he was the, the greatest among all sinners. But, but when he woke up in the morning, that's not where his mind went. His mind went, yeah, that was true of me. But he wakes up in Christ, dead to himself, with the, the fullness of God's inheritance purchased for him. Do you know what that means? It means, listen, as, as a Christian, when you wake up, you wake up understanding all, all that was Christ's is yours. If you're in Christ, his peace is yours. If you're in Christ, the power that raised Christ from the dead is yours. I love how Paul says, we were the first to get this message, but now he says, in you also, you also, in him, you also have this. Not just Paul, not just Timothy, not just the, the best of the best, but in him, you also. He says, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, he says, listen, you're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. When you believe, when you, when you take your faith, when you take your trust, you say, okay, God, I'm gonna believe you. That Jesus died on the cross for me, rose again for me on the third day. And even with your doubts, you come saying, I'm trusting in you. Listen, listen, if you have a lot of questions, if you read through verses like this and go, man, predestined, chosen, I mean, there's a lot of questions I've got, I, a lot of things in here I don't understand. I mean, it even starts with God, the Father of Christ, like, like the Trinity, how does that work? I, I don't know, listen, I got good news for you. If you've got a lot of questions, you'd make a great disciple. There's still lots of things I don't understand. I mean, I, there's so much about who God is, we can't tie up in a nice little bow. 
our puny little brains trying to comprehend all that is infinite. A lot of things I don't understand, but I've decided to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. Paul says, when you heard this truth and believed, that, that word believe, there's such an important word in Greek. It means to believe, to trust, to commit your whole life to. There's a big difference in believing that Jesus was real and believing in Jesus. I can believe that there is a hockey team called the Toronto Maple Leafs. I've learned through my life, I don't want to believe in them anymore, right? You see the difference? You don't become a Christian filled with all these blessings by just believing that Jesus. No, 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 you believe in him. You trust in him. You put your faith in him. You rest your life on him. And when that happens, you're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of your inheritance. So good, I love that. Your inheritance is guaranteed. You, you can't lose it. Remember, God chose you. He purchased you. He paid for you. The only way to lose this is if the Holy Spirit's completely incompetent. I, mean, I lose stuff all the time. Something you hear at my house numbers of times a day will be me saying, has anybody seen my glasses? Right? And I'm looking for them all the time. I'm like, where are they? Why are they out in the middle of the yard? What, what was I doing out there? Right? That's not how your salvation goes because it's not up to you to keep it. It's up to Christ in you. When you're in Christ, you have nothing to worry about for the future. Not, not a year from now, not 60 years from now, not, not a million years from now. It's guaranteed. If you're in Christ, the worst thing that can happen to you if you're in Christ is that you die. That's it? Because that's the doorway that I get, then get to see Christ face to face. I mean, Paul ends this whole thing off with to the praise of his glory. He said it a few times already. And you might say, wait a minute, I thought this was all about who I am in Christ. I thought it's about me, but listen, in the end, it's actually about him. This is such good news for you and me, that this actually is all about God. It's all about our worship, because if God is the most beautiful, if God is the most wonderful, glorious possible being there is, then there's nothing better in all of creation, nothing greater than God. If, if, if he's infinitely loving and satisfying, if, if all love, all joy, all peace is found ultimately in God, then what's the greatest gift we could get? It would be him. And so, so to, to worship and praise, it's the right response. That when you're filled with this joy, that joy overflows. Because when, when you enjoy something, we automatically praise it. Not because you have to, but because you love to. And we find joy in that, right? If I'm watching the Toronto Raptors play, you don't need to tell me it's time to stand up and cheer, Right? It just happens. Why? Because I'm loving what I'm seeing, right? And, and so praise in that moment is not something you have to do. It's something that you want to do. Praise is this moment of joy. Listen, we have something so much greater than somebody who can sink a three-pointer, right? I'd say this. Let's be finished and done with routine Sundays where we just gather together to sing some songs and then we move on. We're children of God. God of the universe has adopted you. He's blessed you. He's chosen you. He's destined you for, for blessing and amazing. He's, he's brought you into his family. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's lavished love on you. He's made you an heir. He's sealed you with his spirit. He's guaranteed your inheritance and your eternity. Yes, 
all by his grace. Just stand with me as we respond to this good news. As the worship team comes up, as, um, as I pray, would you pray with me? Lord God, how do we respond to this? Father, for those who are here and don't know you, God, I pray the response would be, I want all of that. Father, I pray that even in this moment, Lord, there are those here in this room who are still in Adam. There are those here in this room who don't know you, who are not in you, who are not adopted, not blessed, not lavished love on, but God, today could be, could be a new start, could be a new day. And so, Lord, I pray that even right now, God, in a way that only you could do, you would be wooing hearts. God, you'd be bringing people who are dead to life. Father, I pray for those here in this room who are in Christ. God, that we would read something like this, we would hear something like this, and Lord, it wouldn't just be, yeah, I know that. God, for those who have been walking with you for decades, God, that they would never get over your amazing grace. Lord, God, I thank you for people who are, who are brand new to the faith, God, I, who just love to talk to you because there's this excitement in them, God. I pray that that never fades, God, that there would be a, a joy that overflows, God, that we would continue to come back again and again to this truth that, that we were sinners, dead, lost in sin, and you chose us to redeem us, to forgive us, to lavish love and blessing on us. Lord God, I pray that that never gets old for us. I pray that even as we respond in worship this morning, God, that that worship would overflow out of the truth of who we are in you. God, you'd send us out of here with a message of this hope and this new life. Lord God, that what happened in Ephesus could happen here in Muskoka. God, that we could take this truth. And Lord, those who you know, God, that you'd be drawing hearts even now of our neighbors, of our coworkers, of the students we go to school with, Lord God, that the joy of this truth, Lord, that you would fill this room, not because we want a big church, but because we want more people to bring praise to your glory. So God, this morning we want to respond in that same way. To the praise of your glory, for your grace. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.